Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It was a civil war, uh, and within the Congress, there were people that fought on both sides of the aisle. Uh, within the war itself, there were people that fought. I mean, it, was, it was a civil war. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor James Smith discussing the ideological origins of the American Revolution, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by the new film, Benedict Arnold, Hero Betrayed. Available for streaming on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, and most cable TV providers. For a full listing, visit BenedictArnoldHeroBetrayed.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor James Smith, and he'll be discussing the ideological origins and strongest voices of those opinions of the American Revolution. One thing we don't often think about is the revolutionary era as a conversation. I think a lot of the time we discuss these things like they were set in stone, like the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution fell from the heavens in a complete state. And of course, we know that couldn't be further from the truth. It was the result of a long dialogue from a lot of opposing voices. And James Smith does a wonderful job of showing that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with James Smith. James Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, basically, I went to, school, went to college after I was in the Army, got paid, went to college on the GI Bill back in the uh, 60s, uh, got my degree in psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University, and instead of going to graduate school, I raised a family, <laughs> and that's really basically it. Uh, put some kids through college and, and just did, did my work, but I've always been interested in history. Uh, always loved it and decided that basically a few, about 15 years ago, I found a book uh, that got me started on American revolutionary history. What first drew your interest into this topic? Okay. Well, I was up in Maine in a used bookstore, and I came across book volume 23 of Letters of Delegates to Congress. And I was thinking, you know, the modern Congress, and I pulled it down, looked at it, and I found out it was all the letters and diary entries uh, and speeches written by members of the Continental Congress uh, in 1783. And I got to read, I've always loved source material, uh, loved to read source material. What were the people of a given age saying themselves? Not what somebody was telling me they were saying. And I started reading that, uh, decided I wanted the rest of the books. Uh, however, the library were published by the Library of Congress, and they had run out of, run out, you know, I guess they just had a limited number where they were publishing. So I bought me a laser printer and downloaded the all 20-some volumes. Uh, printing them off. But as I read through those, I said, you know what? 
every time you read about the Continental Congress, it's just 1776. Very few people write about the whole Congress. In fact, the last book I could find was written back in the 40s. So I thought I would like to do it, but concentrating on the politics, not the battles. Everybody writes about the battles. This is just the politics. And I've been working on that for a number of years, and this particular article is a part of that. Now, I decided I would uh, try to trim it down and, you know, make it fit the format for the uh, Journal of American Revolution and submit it and just see if what I'm doing is any good. James, you talk a lot about the importance of European thinkers like John Locke in your article. Uh, How did he help form the ideological bedrock, so to speak, of American independence? One of the things that, as you read through the politics of 1770s and 80s, though during the revolution, is that they were all over the place. It was not a monolithic, you know, let's go get, you know, let's go get independence. You know, Britain is bad, Parliament's bad. It was, it was really, you know, as John John Adams said, you know, there was a lot of people against it, as many against it as it was for it. Uh, and the idea is, you know, we have rights. It kind of was kind of really a new idea if you study it. Uh, where do rights come from? What, what authority do they have? And John Locke was one of those in the 17th and 18th century that was coming up with new ideas about where you know what rights were and how they came about and and how they were vested. And uh, his writings had a great influence on you know the thinkers uh, of the Revolution and his idea that rights came from a source other than a king or a prince or some form of government that everybody had them was kind of a new and unique idea. And a number of American revolutionaries seized on those ideas and and they were influenced by them. So I sort of started with that, you know, here's, that was sort of the, like, here's, you know, we have rights outside of what government says we have, so to speak. They're They're innate and inheritable and, Every single human being has them. We meet a man named James Otis in your article. How did his discussions shape this conversation? James Otis was one of John Adams' heroes, and he's the one who wrote the uh, the court article or actor of it was you know defended uh, against people uh, on the writs of assistance. You know he opposed it, and his case, of course, was famous, and you know it ended basically writs of assistance. British uh, British way of search warrants uh, in the colonies, and his speech sort of electrified a lot of people, and John Adams was one of them, and he became one of the radical leaders in Massachusetts. But when the Stamp Act came out, Otis said, "Yes, Parliament messed up. Parliament, you know, doesn't have authority to do what they did. Parliament needs to rescind this. But until Parliament does, we have a duty to obey." He was taking the position that that Parliament spoke for the British Empire. And that's one of the things that was a big debate between more or less the radical and the moderates within the uh, American Revolution is, what's the authority of Parliament? Uh, Is the British Empire a single entity in and of itself? And if so, it's a British Empire, therefore Parliament is in charge? Or is it made up of parts? And each part has its own rights in its own legislature, and each part is responsible to its own legislature. And, and Otis, you know, somewhat surprising to Adams, you know, said, no, no uh, 
you know, we have a right to to argue, we have a right to petition, we have a right to disagree, but until Parliament itself rescinds these laws, we have to obey them. And that was sort of sort of like one of the early statements of that regard, and I sort of started with that, so that as a basis or a starting point. On the other side, we have John Adams. What did Adams contribute to this debate? Okay, Adams was kind of one of these people that he he too was against Parliament. I think, and he too had ideas that rights were inherent and inherent uh, that we each had rights that we're just born with. But, but he was a little put off by the violence that was going on. Uh, the burning of buildings, the tarring and feathering, uh, these kind of things. And he was really sort of, even though Sam Adams was his cousin, he was kind of, in one of his writings, he actually takes Sam Adams to task for, for doing these things, leading, sort of being a leader of these businesses. So St. John Adams was trying to find a middle way. Adams is wrong, but I don't want to go as far as Sam Adams. So he wrote this article about, you know, what government is, what her rights are, and what's interesting is how he basically said all the government since the Roman Empire, uh, based on church or secular authority, has been you know repressive and um, well, I'm trying to think of the word here. Basically repressive and in fact he was interesting he even dumped up the foot of Christianity and so and so to speak. And he says there are other rights and other ways to do it and he defended the idea of inherent rights, God given inherent rights that exist in, in in the fact of nature as created by God and we each have them and we need to learn about these, we need to study about these, we need to think about these. Basically he was calling for people to sort of you know, learn, study, read, be prepared, uh, resist. But he was sort of not going as far as Sam Adams, but yet still was opposed to the idea that uh, Otis had, that, you know, we had to be totally subservient to Parliament. And he built on Locke's idea, uh, you know, of the idea of basic rights of nature. Uh, We have natural rights inherent from the very beginning, at birth as, as human beings. What were the primary methods used by these men to engage the American public with these ideas? Well, in their day, it was through publication, pamphlets. Everybody loved to write pamphlets, and they rarely put their own names to them. Uh, but it was basically persuasion. We're trying to persuade people, argumentative persuasion. I don't mean argumentative in a bad sense, but by expressing a point of view, uh, defending that point of view, explaining that point of view, trying to convince others that your point of view is the correct one and this is the uh, the procedure that we should follow. Uh, I guess today we do it on television or uh, on Facebook or something like that. But in those days, it was a printed word through publications and uh, it was, you know, publishing basically pamphlets. And it was a way of trying to just mold public opinion around a given uh, point of view. And Otis and Adams were in the process of trying to do that. As the company, as the country is trying to figure out what do we do with this thing called the Stamp Act. 
James, who do you feel had maybe the more convincing argument of this time period? Oh, boy. Personally, my per- I feel close to the position of Otis and, and, and others like him. John Galloway speaks to me. Are we English or are we not English? We say we're English. We say we want the rights of Englishmen. We're entitled to the rights of Englishmen. But, you know, and we we keep trying to say we owe allegiance to the king, not parliament. And they kind of totally ignored the fact that ever since 1688, the king can only rule through parliament. By the revolution of 1688, the glorious revolution, parliament had finally subdued the monarchy to the point that it was parliament was the one that gives, gives or makes laws, not the king. The king can only rule through parliament. So every time the radicals are trying to say the king needs to stop parliament, the king needs to reign in parliament, and the king needs to, the king didn't have that authority. He did not have that authority. They were asking him to do something they couldn't do. Uh, and I think, you know, the other question is, were we members of the British Empire or were we not? And so if we are, then, you know, how would the British Empire ruled? Um, People like Otis would think the empire is a a whole. It's a one whole, and that whole is led by parliament. Men like Adams said, no, the empire is made up of parts, and each part rules itself separately. Uh, And yet he tried to say that's not independence, but in fact, that's what he was describing. He was describing independence. Uh, I think legally, I think I would side with Otis, but I think here's the thing. By 1775, America was not what it was years and years before. We had sort of grown up, so to speak. The population of America was what, about 3 million? Britain was about 5 million. We We were catching up to Britain rapidly and population wise. The second biggest city in the empire was Philadelphia. Um, I have in my notes somewhere, and I don't know where it is right now, but somewhere right after the French and Indian War, a British officer was riding back to somebody in authority in London saying, now that France is gone, look for the Americans to start looking, talking about independence. They don't need us anymore. We've taken the French off their back. Uh, and he was foreseeing the fact that that with France gone, the French Empire in, in America gone, that we really didn't need them, that we were growing up on our own, that we had ideas of our own. We were developing a culture. So I think for me that while my head might be with Galloway, my heart would recognize that we really have become something different than just British, that we have become something uh, unique, not better, but unique different and we needed to kind of like go our own way so that's probably how i would come at it how did the continental congress take up these debates what did that look like well obviously when they when they congress met and we said we're going to have to uh petition and tell you know britain that we you know that they can't rule us the way they've been ruling us it was necessary to decide all right what are the rights of Americans. You know, if we're going to claim them, what are they and where do they come from? Uh, how do they manifest themselves? And they set up a committee to do that. Well, as you see in the article, 
nobody really agreed what the rights were, much less where they came from or what on what authority they spoke. And they debated that throughout the whole first the first uh, Continental Congress until the time it was almost time to go home, and they still hadn't reached a real resolution. Uh, so they were kind of like all over the place. Some said they were uh, came out of the British, the British common law. Some said they came out of, uh, uh, you know, they were natural and given and human rights, um, you know, the rights of nature. Uh, they were back and forth on this without a whole lot of agreement. And it took really, you know, as my article shows up, finally John Adams kind of sort of took by the, whole, by the bull by the horns and finished it up after everybody went home. What were the highlights of this period of debate? The First Continental Congress. Um, I'll be honest. One of the things is I've studied and I've, I've written – I'm trying to write, like I say, this history, and I'm, I'm, I'm up to 1778, no, 1779. And I guess one of the things I find that everybody writes about Franklin and Adams and Jefferson, and to me it's men like Silas Dean, Robert Morris, Jonathan Zubley, who didn't last very long but tried hard, and he was he was very much opposed to Parliament's, uh, uh, parliaments you know, laws that they were passing, but yet because of his moderation, he was forced by the radicals to sort of withdraw and eventually became a loyalist. Um, a lot of these men that we never hear about, Robert Morris was huge in the revolution. Uh, I mean, if you talk about it, he was one of the most, for, for years, he was one of the most, the most influential men in the Congress. Silas Dean, if I could write a play, if I could write a play, a tragedy it would be a tragedy, and it would be centered on the, on the life of Silas Dean. Here's a man that went from the beginning of the revolution to one of the heroes, to being an outcast, and dying, you know, overseas, uh, penniless. Um, these stories need to be told, uh, and they, so I guess it's the it's the average guy that that got up in every morning and did his best and worked worked. Whatever he could work to get things done, and usually did get things done. Usually did get things done. That didn't get his name in the press all the time, and we've kind of tended to forget about. James, how does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? If nothing else, I hope my writings show people understand that the American Revolution was every bit as much a civil war as it was a revolution. Uh, a heck of a lot of Americans were opposed to the independence. Uh, a heck of a lot of Americans fought with the British Army. There was many regiments made up of Americans that fought with the British. Um, and it was a civil war. Uh, with, and within the Congress, there were people that fought on both sides of the aisle. Uh, within the war itself, there were people that fought. I mean, it, was, it was a civil war. Every business was it was a war against Great Britain. We kind of tend to frame it as a war against Great Britain, but it really was it really was very much a civil war as as a civil we call the civil war was a hundred years later. I think that that's 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 what I try to portray. There was there were Americans on both sides of the issue and they both had points to make. 
James Smith, thanks again. All right. Thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.